I'm used to, he just asked if I could record. I'm used to hearing my lectures as I go down the hall. <laughs> Clearly, there are recordings there. Somebody's listening to them. Okay. Uh, all right, so let's get going. I'm not going to go through the learning objectives. It's actually better to do those at the end after you've seen it. So we're going to start talking about prokaryotic regulation. And there are many, many ways uh, that prokaryotes regulate their lives. Uh, and so I'm going to give you today sort of a list of what those ways are and how they might be altered or examples uh, to show you cases where they are in fact used. So the first one we're going to talk about is regulation at the level of the DNA sequence. And what we mean by that is the organization of genes. If you have genes in an operon, those will co-express the gene products from a uh, single locus. And uh, we'll see that in a minute. There can be gene amplification. What we know is that plasmids that have multiple copies of an antibiotic resistant, those are resistant to higher levels of antibiotics. And you can actually select for them uh, by increasing the amount of antibiotic in the medium. Lastly, gene rearrangement. This does not happen nearly as often as the top two, uh, but it is rearrangement, this is regulation by rearrangement, and it's typically done by an inversion of a DNA segment and that gives you an expression of other genes. Okay, so here's an example of an operon. We'll come back to this later. The important thing uh, for you to see is the polymerase is binding here, and there are three genes that are controlled, and it makes a single polycystronic RNA, uh, RNA fragment. Uh, and so that single messenger RNA gets translated into these three proteins. So that's an operon uh, organization. Okay, here's an example of gene amplification. Uh, and when you see a red section, that's a concept. So pay particular attention to those. Uh, so the key factor is if you have homologous sequences in uh, a bacterium, what you find is that uh, there is recombination between them, and that can lead to uh, DNA rearrangement and uh, amplification. So what you see here is that we start with an antibiotic-resistant uh, plasmid. Notice there's two IS-1 se sequences. 
uh, and those are regions of homology. By recombination between the IS-1s, what happens is you generate a drug-resistant determinant with no uh, replication capability, doesn't have a, a DNA replication origin there. Then you get, you're left with a, uh, an, what, so what you're going to get here, this, by that recombination, has flipped out that piece of drug resistance and left then the R factor and these uh, R factors contain transfer genes which allow them to move to be transferred into uh, other cells. Here what you see is that we've got an RTF with no uh, copies of the drug resistance and here we have just a single one and it still at this point contains its IS-1 sequences. I didn't mark them. Well, it with this 2R determinant up here, we've got one. Uh, two of them can interact with each other and produce two or three. And then that can reintegrate into the uh, transfer plasmid. And you end up with an R factor that contains three determinants for the drug resistance, and that will be uh, that will be resistant to higher levels of antibiotic uh, than if there is just one. Okay. All right. Here's an example of regulation by DNA inversion. This is the prototype system uh, where this regulation was discovered. And what you see here is this is um, an operon for making flagella. And so it makes the H2 flagellin. And in this state, the promoter is directed to the right which means that H2 and RH1 are being transcribed. That means that H2 flagellin will be present in that cell or on that cell. And also the RH1 is a repressor, binds over here to an H1 gene and prevents its expression. So the cell that contains this structure makes H2 flagellum. Here is a recombinase called HIN, and it's responsible for in recombining between these two inverted repeats. When that happens, you get inversion of that DNA segment. That puts your promoter headed to the left, and that means that H2 and RH1 are not being made. So you see with that promoter, there is now a promoter in the H1 uh, expression system. 
and that's the promoter that is now making H1 flagellin. So this was discovered uh, because the flagellins are recognized as um, sequences on the surface of the cell and they are uh, targets of particular, uh, particular antibodies or particular immune system function. And so this leads to phase variation in this salmonella strain. Uh, it, these two proteins react with different uh, parts or different specific elements of the immune system. All right. So next is regulation at the level of transcription. Do I have anything more on that? Okay, that should be it. Can All I right. interrupt for one second more time? Sure. That. So the hen invertase is highly homologous to the rag recombinase. So evolution has reinvented that recombinase many times, both in prokaryotes and eukaryotes. The same domain that drives recombination for that hen is conserved in rag recombinases in EMT cells. All right. So transcription we talked about. So we can have regulation. Regulation there, we've talked about binding of a repressor protein. When that happens, transcription is prevented. If it's an activator protein, that stimulates transcription. And as we'll talk about uh, in our next lecture, attenuation then is an RNA secondary structure and it uh, modulates transcription termination and read through. So that's transcription. The other factor is messenger RNA stability. And this is going to be affected by translation and the presence of stem loop structures in uh, the RNA. So translating ribosomes typically protect messenger RNA from degradation. They prevent the rho protein uh, binding to its recognition sequences. RNA secondary structure at the 5 prime end, the 3 prime end, and within uh, the messenger RNA can either increase or decrease degradation. What you see is that RNA stem loops at the 5 prime end uh, reduce loading of the endonucleases that are going to cleave uh, that messenger RNA. RNA stem loops at the 3' end can reduce loading of the exonucleases. So um, we can get a lot of control, not just at this level, but also at messenger RNA stability levels. And finally, the RNA stem loops that are internal, those can be targets for cleavage by RNAs three. Okay. Regulation then at the level of translation and protein activity. So with translation, you're going to hear a lot more from Dr. Aldrin. 
Uh, translation, you can have repression of translation, blocking it. You can have activation of translation, auto-regulation by the product, and what's called translational coupling. Uh, and I'll come back to that at some point. We can also have uh, regulation at the level of protein stability or modification. So covalent modification will change the protein activity. Proteolytic cleavage can either activate the protein or destroy uh, the protein activity. And binding to host cell proteins activates or reduces the activity. So you can see there's a lot of targets that, that can be used for uh, regulation. Most regulation occurs at the level of transcription. That's because transcription and translation are highly energy dependent. So they use up a lot of the cell's energy in order to do them. And it makes much more sense than not to make a transcript than to make the transcript and the protein product um, if, if it's not going to be used. So cells have evolved uh, mechanisms for saving energy by not doing this. So many op opportunities for small molecules, chemicals, and the protein factors to influence the process. And this can happen at any one of these steps. A little organization here. There are regulatory units, and they have different names. So we have uh, here, we call either a gene or a cistron. Cistron was the original name because we didn't have DNA sequences, so we didn't know gene, what genes were. Well, we knew what they were, but it was trying to figure out what, by complementation, which genes or which cistrons. So don't worry about cistron. Nowadays, we refer to things as genes, because we can determine whether they are single or not. So a gene encodes a single polypeptide. Here's an example of how that would look. We have our regulatory protein, R, and that can bind. In this case, we're going to see transcription. gets to the terminator and ends. And that transcript, we'll see, gets translated into protein. In this second case, we have an operon. And the difference is that in the operon, multiple genes are transcribed from the same uh, regulatory region. And those genes, those products then uh, the, uh, from the messenger RNA is making three proteins. So we call this a polycystronic mRNA. And the key is uh, that in this operon, the messenger RNA codes for more than one polypeptide.
We have other regulatory units. One is a regulon. So with the regulon, what you have is a single regulatory protein that regulates multiple genes, don't have to be together, uh, and it regulates them, what should I say, simultaneously so that it can make all the different products that are needed by that uh, cell. So an example would be the arginine biosynthetic regulon. That uh, is simply a group of genes that are leading to synthesis of arginine. The important thing is that they are targeted, recognized by a single regulatory protein. You can use this same diagram for a stimuli. In this case, multiple genes and operons are uh, expressed, controlled by a single stimulus. So these can be operons or single genes. They respond to a single stimulus and Examples there that you probably have heard about are heat shock stimulons or cold shock stimulons where there are a number of different genes that respond to this single stimulus. Prokaryotic gene. Starting with here on the left, uh, we have binding sites for the RNA polymerase, and for regulator proteins, uh, those can be repressors, or those can be uh, activators. So looking at this and saying it's not labeled right, binding sites for the regulators, the repressor binds on the operator sequence, that's what we define an operator, and an activator site is where uh, the activator binds. If you look, this is the coding sequence here, and I need to point out that this coding sequence is very, very short. It's, it's been uh, brought the two ends together to fit on the page. So when you have the coding region, the first thing uh, that you see as a regulatory signal is you have a ribosome binding to the ribosome binding site. That then can translate uh, the RNA, messenger RNA, and that, the RNA, ends at the transcription terminator. I'll show you in a minute that uh, what we have here then is there's a short leader in the messenger RNA so that there's extra uh, sequences so that the ribosome can bind. So the protein start is usually a few bases downstream from the uh, messenger RNA start. And that protein then ends at the stop codon. Here's an example of an operon, and here we have 
the polymerase, in this case the repressor or activator. Uh, we have two genes in this operon, and so transcription occurs. That occurs starting at the transcription start site. The messenger RNA is then produced. You have two genes here. In each case, the gene has, a, the, just upstream from it, has a ribosome binding site and an ATG, the initiation codon. And so a single polypeptide is made as a consequence. When that reaches the stop codon, the ribosome can dissociate, doesn't have to, but it can, but then it would be free to bind to the next ribosome binding site to make the product of gene two. Notice that our start codons, ATG is used almost exclusively, I'd say 80 to 90%, but GTG and TTG can also be used. And then your stop codons are TAA, TAG, and TGA in the RNA sequence, in the DNA sequence. We can have for these genes either positive or negative regulation or both. So here, let's talk about the proteins that are involved. With positive regulation, the binding of the regulatory protein turns the genes on. We call that regulatory protein an activator, and you will find that catabolic operons, those that are degrading specific substrates, they're typically positively regulated, and its default state is off. We have negative regulation, and that's binding of the regulatory protein leads to turning the genes off. In that case, it's defined as a regulatory protein as a repressor. And the biosynthetic operons are typically negatively regulated, and their default state is on. How these systems uh, how they respond is due to the presence of small molecules or other proteins. And the concept here is that regulation is accomplished by the concentration dependence of binding of the small molecule inducers and co-repressors to those regulatory proteins. And the small molecule signals are either transported into the cell from the environment, or they can be made de novo by the cell. All right, positive regulation. We have binding of that chemical to the regulatory protein, and it turns the genes on. So we call that chemical an inducer. With negative regulation, binding of the chemical to that regulatory protein turns the genes off, and then we call it a co-repressor. Okay, so you've got sort of the land uh, marks there, what happens when you have 
interaction of the proteins with the DNA dependent upon the presence of small molecules or, uh, or large molecules in a few cases. Uh, and so, uh, so what we have here is we have the definitions. I find that this does not stay in my head conceptually, uh, so I'm always ha having to do this, but if you write it out this way, or if you think it out this way, um, you will understand the regulation. Allosteri is a very important concept. Conformational changes in a protein can result from binding of another protein or a small molecule. The conformational changes alter the ability of the protein to interact with its substrate <coughs> or other interaction partner, so DNA, RNA, proteins. And what happens with Elisteri is that here's our, uh, let's just call this the starting state of our protein. Here, when the substrate is added, there it is, and the purple, and that can be joined by that protein, and then you have this purple product. When you have instead an effector bind, and that's what this uh, yellow circle is, this is where we would see the allosteri. The binding of that effector changes the shape here, changes the access of the substrate to the binding site, and so it can no longer catalyze the reaction. And so that's the basis for the regulation that we've been talking about uh, via small chemicals and interaction of uh, sites and other proteins. So what you see here is an example, and it's an example too uh, that you don't have to memorize. You don't have to be able to uh, to remember this. What I want you to get is the sense, the big picture. So here we have the regulator binding sites and your promoters and the various uh, gene products that are responsible for regulation. Here are binding sites for these regulators and other factors. Uh, and you'll notice that we have a lot of binding sites, not just one the way we talk about with the lac operon. There are fine tuning is quite possible because of the presence of these other sites. They're, notice they're upstream from plus one, the majority, but 
on some occasions there can be binding beyond plus one. So where are these binding sites? Our, I mentioned sites that are bound by repressors called operators. Here's an example. If uh, the site's bound by activators, those are activator binding sites, not surprisingly. And what you see here is that operators, if this is your zero uh, plus one, let's call it, or minus one, what you see is that there's a large concentration of operators uh, for this region in the base pairs. So operators tend to be close to uh, plus one. When you look at activator sites, what you see is that they are located typically upstream of plus one. And some of them as far as minus 60 or beyond. Another concept, some proteins can be both activators and repressors. There, it depends upon the position of the binding site in the uh, regulatory region. Also, many regulatory proteins are dimers, and they bind to inverted repeats in the DNA. Here's an example of the uh, binding of inverted binding to inverted repeats. So you have your DNA here, and here's uh, the protein, and it's a dimer. And so what you see is that there's a small interface here between cap, which is the protein, this protein, and the alpha CTD, which is uh, here in navy and yellow. And what you have is the two DNA recognition helices of the calf dimer insert themselves into consecutive turns of the major group in the DNA. And in the case of CAP, this leads to DNA bending. So there are some instances uh, where you get bending, other instances where you don't get bending. What you see if you look at the DNA sequence, and this is called a binding site logo, these, the height or distance of the uh, bar up tells you the specificity or non-specificity of these inverted repeats. So if you look here, what you have is your TGTGA. 
TGTGA. Same thing on the bottom strand, again, at the five time end, and those are the two inverted repeats. Those then have specificity to them. At other positions, like the ones here, any of the bases can be present. All right. There are three common mechanisms for repression. One is there can be steric hindrance. That's probably what you hear the most. And that occurs when the repressor binds and prevents the RNA polymerase for getting any access to the promoter. So you aren't going to get any transcript made. There can be repression by looping, and this happens when uh, there's dimers formed by bound, rather, this point downstream and this point, sorry, this point downstream, that point upstream. And the looping causes those repressors to interact to make uh, a tetramer and that prevents the RNA polymerase from being able to get into this constrained loop. Finally, we have repression by binding of the repressor to a bound activator. So in this situation, not very frequently, what it does is to prevent the activator from being able to stimulate the uh, transcript from the RNA. So these last ones are called anti-activators. And here you see the repressor is bound here, the activator is bound there, but the activator is in an altered conformational state, and so it cannot stimulate, be stimulated by, uh, for the transcription by binding of the alpha-CTD. Activation at simple promoters, which we know there are not, I won't say they're, they're few, but they're certainly uh, lost my train of thought. All right, so what we have here, we're looking at activation by a single activator. And we divide these into three classes. Class one is where the activator binds in the minus 60 region and recruits the RNA polymerase in the alpha-CTD, which is the ray molecule here, fills the space between the, uh, fills the space so that there is not empty space between the alpha-CTD and the polymerase, the rest of the polymerase. Fix the diagram. What I mean by that is that this arrow, typically you will see the DNA completely covered 
by the protein molecules. So if you nudge one, it will nudge the others. So just that arrow tells you that there's not a lot of space in between them. Class two is where the activator binds in the minus 40 region. And in that case, it often interacts with both the alpha CTD, this would be binding upstream here, but it also, because of its position, can also interact with the sigma C-terminal domain. And that happens quite frequently. And finally, we don't, this is not a class three, this is just different, <laughs> and so there will be different ones. Um, if the activator binding, in this particular case, it's bound between the minus 10 and the minus 35. In this case, the, it was, their stretch there is too long, and by binding the activator here, the regions of the minus 10 and minus 35 can be pulled together a bit, and that then allows for transcription. Finally, and I would say, let's just go through these. All right, we can have repositioning of an activator by the repressor, or repositioning of uh, an activator by another activator. And what's happening here is binding of one of these proteins leads to repositioning where these next operator uh, activators are bound, and that can lead to then initiation of transcription by the polymerase. Here's another example similar to the one we looked at, and here the second activator is binding and looping the DNA, which lets the act first activator then bind to the polymerase, and that leads to transcription. We have another class here, and this is where uh, we have activator two upstream, and the alpha CTD actually um, one copy binds between the polymerase and the activator, the other copy bounds, binds here between the two activators. And again, where you see this space, that space is probably not there. What you're looking at with the majority of these regulatory events is uh, the DNA is, is bound by the uh, proteins to form a single unit, if you want to call it that, um, that is like it is here. There's contact between the different activators and the alpha-CTD and the polymerase. And finally, down here, we have an example of anti-repression. And in this case, the 
repressor, repressor interacts with activator 2 and that shuts off its function and so you see that activator 1 and the upstream alpha CTD can now operate, can stimulate transcription. Much easier now. All right. Bacteria don't have nucleosomes, and we don't really refer to the DNA as chromatin, but if we did, there's a set of proteins that we call nucleoid proteins, and they're the uh, analog to chromatin in the bacteria. Their properties are they're abundant, they bind with weak sequence specificity. Uh, HNS is one example, and what it does is to basically coat the DNA with that protein uh, over a long distance, and when that happens, the expression of that uh, DNA is greatly reduced. Two of these other proteins, this protein and IHF, those can also serve as activators and repressors. So uh, these are abundant proteins and they do have functions at many of the promoters. Not all of them, but many. may be familiar to you. Um, it's one of the uh, it's it's one of the systems that is used to um, show as an example of regulation. Catabolite repression is a general feature and the key feature is bacteria can distinguish between good carbon sources and poor carbon sources. It uses catabolite repression to ensure that they use the glucose first. It is the best source. So if you have a mixture of glucose and lactose up here, then the cells will eat up all of the glucose and it's only when the glucose is gone that the enzymes for lactose degradation are induced and then the lactose is degraded and used for energy in the cell. So it's a stepwise process and it's determined by uh, the presence of cyclic AMP, its concentration. So in general, catabolite repression reflects the levels of cyclic AMP, and cyclic AMP is inversely related to glucose levels. So when the glucose is high, the cyclic AMP is low. When the glucose is low, the cyclic AMP is high. 
And this signaling then allows for uh, the regulation. The regulatory protein is CAP. Uh, it's also known as CRP, but CAP is much easier to say, <laughs> so that's what we typically call it. It's an activator protein. It binds to the promoter region in the LAC operon, interacts with RNA polymerase, and turns on transcription. The key factor here is CAP by itself can't bind to the promoter. Only CAP with a cyclic AMP, making it complex, is able to bind to the DNA. And so CAP is the monitor of cyclic AMP levels. Specificity, so this is now general to a number of catabolic operons. Specificity then is exerted at the level of each sugar catabolic operon by the binding of a repressor. So, concept, the sugar catabolic operons are under both positive control and negative control. Here's our black operon again, and what you see is the lac operon is transcribed from the promoter P. It makes a polycystronic message and leads to the production of three proteins. In the absence of inducer, lac repressor binds to the DNA, prevents polymerase from binding, and so there's no lac messenger made. When inducer is present, and inducer here is allolactose, it's converted by the cell from lactose to allolactose. That is the inducer. The inducer binds to the repressor, making that repressor inactive, and so leading to the production of the three proteins. We only get a little bit of these because the lac promoter inherently is a very poor promoter. So it's only making, by itself, only a small number of transcripts. So only a few of the proteins. However, when cap is there, in the presence of lactose, the inducer is going to bind and make an inactive repressor. In the presence of a cap cyclic AMP complex, that then makes a lot of RNA. And so you're left with a lot of proteins. So the reason, one of the reasons this works is in the absence of glucose, there's high levels of cyclic AMP. They bind to cap that binds the polymerase, and you get large amounts of protein products. In the absence of both sugars, there are high levels of cyclic AMP. That complex can bind to the promoter, 
but there's no inducer. So the repressor protein is then bound to uh, the operator, and that prevents transcription. So we don't see any lack message and no lack proteins. When do we normally? 8.32, sorry, 8.32, 9.50. Okay, so I'll take some questions, or I'll throw some questions at you. So can an inducer be both something that um, works with an activator or something that inhibits a repressor? Yes. They both qualify as the When you have a repressor, the, back up, the, you're asking, are they both inducers? Okay. Or is there a difference in terminology? There's a difference in terminology, okay? If it's having a repression function, then it's called a co-repressor. So the co-repressor uh, then leads to, still is a negative effector, um, but we, we distinguish them on the basis that an inducer turns the genes on and, or leads to expression, and the repressor is preventing expression. So it binds in a complex as well. Want me to go back? Um, I understand what you said, but I don't okay. know if I answered my question. Okay. <laughs> Let me hear the question again. Um, is an inducer both a molecule that binds with an activator to accomplish activation and a molecule that can bind a repressor to inhibit that repressor and prevent repression? And you're asking about the protein, right? The whatever qualifies as an inducer. In the lac operon example, you had an inducer binding to a repressor to remove it. Right. Right. And so the rest of your question? Um, you can't have an inducer that doesn't turn off gene expression. So that was already always off. So an inducer would turn it on. I think it was always so on. You have to have a repressor turn off. So the quality of being an inducer is leading to gene activation, not specifically binding to an activator protein versus binding to a repressor protein. Yeah. That,
I'll tell you of uh, another interesting uh, situation, and that is you can have the regulatory protein be either a repressor, or rather be both a repressor and uh, an activator. Same protein. The difference is where it's the small molecule uh, and <coughs> the difference is where it binds within the promoter. So the arabinose operon, uh, if it's binding to a repressor, repressor is bound, no transcription. And then if you add arabinose, it binds in a different position. And in that position, it's an activator and it stimulates transcription. So the key feature in many of these, uh, in these events, you have small molecules interacting with proteins. And there's where you get the, uh, how we say the words, <laughs> uh, what we call them. And they bind, when they bind in different places in the promoter, or upstream of the promoter, you have different effects that are possible. So in one case, it's a repressor. If it, you saw the different ways that a repressor can turn off transcription. And then it's at a different binding site because it's bound to the arabinose. And then it becomes an activator. But we do have one thing we need to talk about, and that is uh, when we're going to make up Tuesdays. This is Tuesday's lecture, but it's Thursday today. So when are we going to make up the one we lost? Could you just keep going right now and see how far you can get in that lecture? This is all I have in this lecture. Oh, you want to know, can I go on into the next lecture? Yeah, I could do that. Let's see. Well, let's let's answer this question. Um, when are you all free for me to give you another lecture, or would you rather I give you just the handout and then be available here, say at lunchtime one day, and you can come and ask questions. Pardon? I'm honestly fine with either. I'm okay. happy to just sit here and let you keep talking. Okay. Maybe we could do um, a continuing <laughs> that lecture, like okay. the highlights, and then maybe next Friday or sometimes. I think this Friday it was really packed, especially because this week was so crazy. Yes. But maybe next Friday we could do the lunchtime meeting. Okay. That way we have time to look at it ourselves and we can ask questions. Okay. That'll work. That'll work. So you're going, I'll continue, and you'll just look at the rest, um, and then I'll be here. We can, we can try that and see how it works. I'm a little concerned because the things we're going to talk about are examples, and they're a little complicated. 
but let's try that. If worse comes to worse, I can lecture to you over the lunch hour. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, uh, just in terms of getting a room, this room has to be reserved. What, what time are we talking about? Well, just, I think it, what works best we can for, maybe do a survey for all of you, actually, has to work best for all of you. Can we do a survey monkey, maybe, and then find um, the time that we can meet and we can complain maybe Monday? Rather than just setting up a survey monkey, I can both email all of you, and I'll, I'll give you two times on Friday and see if I would prefer one because that's the time that this room is almost always empty uh, on Fridays. And yeah, there's techniques. But is this time work program on Friday, eight thirty? Friday morning. So you have classes on Friday. We do that. On Friday morning, Monday, Friday morning, and then scheduled for the afternoon. When does your class end on Friday? Wait, the morning session or the, the morning session? The morning session. Nine and nine twenty. All right. How about from nine thirty then? We have a class at ten thirty. <laughs> <laughs> Where's your class at ten thirty? Is there a class at ten thirty in this building? The noon hour is usually not booked. Everybody. No, just now. Now you're fine. Yeah. Yeah. How about nine thirty to ten thirty? Yeah, our work is the next one. So nine thirty to ten thirty. On Wednesday, this one Yeah, that's our work. <laughs> on what day? Friday. Friday. Next Friday. Next Friday. It, it has to be by next Friday because it starts to fall. It won't be before the next test. Friday. Wait, next Friday or this Friday? Next, 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 next Friday. Friday. Not tomorrow. All right. Is that okay with you, Mark? At 10 30? 9 30. 9 30 to 10 30. 9 30. To 10 30. Next Friday. Yeah, that works for me. Okay. All right, I'll make sure the room is ready. Okay. 9.30 a week from now. Yes. Okay, on Friday. Right. Okay, that's good. So let's see how far we can get. going to be um, important almost as a concept. So how do we get cis-acting or trans-acting factors and what are they? So we refer to a locus as, as cis-acting and that's when the regulatory activity only on its own DNA molecule. So there's no uh, protein that's coded there. The, there are simply regulatory sites. Transacting factors, the regulatory proteins are free to diffuse around the cell and they regulate the activity occurring on another DNA molecule or, in fact, uh, they're just at a different 
place in the, in the chromosome. And so you can have a repressor protein in the environmental milieu. You can have an activator protein, and those are freely diffusible through the cell. There is one exception, and that is there can be a cis-acting protein. That's where that protein only acts on the molecule for which it's expressed. And I think there are a couple of examples. The one I'm using is phage mu, which we study. Its transposase protein gets captured into a complex and it acts only on the sites of that same <coughs> DNA molecule. Typically, you can distinguish uh, between the cis-acting locus or the transacting factor with the right combinations of uh, genetics to test it. When we draw RNA, you always see us draw a nice little arrow. That's not what the RNA looks like in the cell. In two dimensions, this is an example of what an RNA will look like. It will have multiple interactions that lead to both bubbles and regions of uh, double-stranded uh, stems that are formed. This is two-dimensional. If you go to 3D, what you see is that, for example, a bubble here may interact with one over here. And so you see then looping of this structure. In this case, let's call it out of the blackboard. And you can have another one uh, somewhere else, and it may interact over here. And what you'll see then is a, another loop. This one could be behind the backbone. So, Linda, is all that data from gRNAs only, or do they have crystal structures in mRNAs? mRNAs. Uh, I, I don't think there are mRNA crystal structures. Um, I'm trying to think. Certainly, what you'd have to have is the right pairing, and you pretty well have to know what that is. So I, I can't, off the top of my head, tell you that I've seen any crystal structures of uh, messenger RNA, specific messengers, uh, but you can see uh, from degradation experiments with specific RNAs that um, one of these bubbles will be sensitive to cleavage by something. So you could get small pieces and look at those. And I. I'll, have, I'll look it up because I know there are instances where small, small things have been crystallized, usually in regulation, and I'll, I'll see if I can find one. All right, so important concept. When multiple pairings are possible, 
those with the longest length, i.e., those which have the greatest energy, those will predominate. And so you can see by making mutations or by making multiple pairings, you're going to have a specific pairing that predominates in the uh, reaction. Transcription attenuation. This is the other uh, sort of prototype system for regulation. And this occurs for uh, in E. coli for synthesis of amino acids. So what you see here is, here's four examples for the synthesis of uh, these proteins and, sorry, of these amino acids. And whether they're made depends on the formation of alternate secondary <coughs> structures in a leader RNA. And some of those structures cause polymerase termination. <coughs> the way this works is there's ribosome stalling at codons in a leader peptide requiring the octobron's amino acid product as the mechanism for detecting when the cell needs more of that amino acid. So the regulatory molecule in these cases is typically the aminoacyl tRNA specific for the operon's amino acid product. So here is an example. So these are the leader sequences. So you would have in the tryptophan operon, if this is the initiating uh, first amino acid in this uh, sequence, there are two trip codons here. If there is uh, not enough tryptophan in the cell, and the cell needs to make more, what it's going to do is the ribosome is going to stall at this point, at least transiently. And the consequence of that, I'll show you shortly. In the threonine operon, whew, there's a lot of them. So a lot of places where it can stall. Same is true for phenylalanine. And curiously, in the histidine operon, you get uh, a sequence which is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven histidines in a row. So um, that also will be very sensitive to the concentration of the histidine RNA, tRNA. Notice that these are really short proteins, but they're coded for in the operon, and they're usually they're coded for at the very beginning of the operon. So the trip operon is one that has been used the most. It encodes the five different enzymes for synthesis of tryptophan. Notice here we've got our promoter, our operator, where the repressor can bind. But then we have a little sequence here that's called the leader. The leader is the peptide that I showed you here. So what's happened? is that this leader protein 
in this leader, sorry, yeah, leader protein, or leader peptide, um, there are the leader peptide, contains two tryptophanes, and is regulated uh, by translation of that peptide. So in this case, our trip operon is regulated by repression, just as we talked about earlier today. There's a protein that will bind to the operator. And, but it's also regulated by attenuation. And attenuation is what we're going to talk about. All right. This is a biosynthetic operon. So the default condition is on. The repressor protein by itself is inactive. When tryptophan is in excess, it binds to the repressor protein, and that produces an active repressor, which then binds uh, to the operator, and no transcription is made. So here, you've got your inactive repressor, and you have your co-repressor, uh, which is the tryptophan. So we're going to look at uh, the leader RNA before you get down to the first gene in the pathway. So that's the first biosynthetic gene. There are multiple interactions of these sequences in the RNA. Here, what you see is that there is pairing between 3 and 4, and that leads to a termination at this point. This should look to you like a terminator, a transcription terminator. It looks like a stem loop structure. So in this case, where there is pairing, you get uh, no RNA. The re way this happens is <clears throat> that when there's a high concentration of tryptophan, you have ribosomes translating, that's what these are, translating, uh, to produce the lead to produce the protein and it sequesters part of this region and that's what allows formation of this hairpin. At low concentrations of tryptophan, <clears throat> the ribosomes stall when they get to where they need to insert the tryptophan and that leaves the 2-3 region uncovered. It's actually 2 to, to the end. Um, and here's where your stability, your number of, of pairings that occurs. Here, 2 is much longer than 3, whereas 3 down to 4 before, you now make a longer hairpin and so that has uh, the higher probability of existing. 
So when that happens, there's no terminator because now four is it's just another sequence and it then leads to uh, making your polycystronic tryptophan messenger RNA. Okay. Everybody understand that? In, in one case, you have the pairings that give you uh, stalling, and in the other case, you have the 3, 4 region pair, looks like a terminator, terminates, and it terminates, it won't prevent it completely, but it, pre it slows it down, it doesn't slow it down. It leads to a proportion, depending on how long it's the ribosome stall, that leads to uh, a proportion of the molecules that are interacting in this way. And so there's, looks like a terminator, and you get no RNA, whereas in the case here, what you have is if there is no protein synthesis, no initiation at the ribosome binding site, or unable to uh, continue, here what you see then is you get a 1-2 structure, you get a 3-4 structure, because 1 and 2 give you the longest hairpin, whereas then three and four are free to hybridize to each other, and base pairing with each other. And if there's no protein synthesis, then there is no RNA that's made um, because you, you have in this situation the three, four hair, hairpin that looks like it's running. All right. I'm going to stop here because it's a good stopping point, and we'll go we'll go through the rest. Nine thirty next Friday. Next Friday. <laughs> <laughs> I better write this down. <laughs> I have a question. Okay. Um, so the his operon is that in the coli commonly? Is that like always the coli that is operon? That present coli. Okay. Let me understand. There's always a biosynthesis of of histidine. So would that mean that we're trying to do purify histidine using that sequence? Would that alter the coli effect? That yeah. Okay. Yeah. It it. There are several proteins in the cell, I don't remember the others, that have strings of histidine, and you will get them. I have problems with Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay.
just sent an email, so we're all on the same. Okay. Okay. Great.